0: Well, I understand the lights went out here last night, is that right? All right, well, uh, it went out where I was also, so um, we are at the mercy of providence, aren't we? Well, um, I'm looking forward to today. I want to do several things with you. I want to complete the portion of the uh, notes where we have been. And, uh, and then I want us to talk about how to pull a sermon together. So we'll, we'll do that today. I think it would be most appropriate for us uh, to begin in a word of prayer. So let, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that we can join together now again and look into uh, this subject matter of preaching your word. We ask for your help and your assistance that we could interact with one another in a way that is profitable. Thank you for yesterday, the blessing that is still ours, that has accrued from the time we spent together. And we ask now today, in the time that we have that remains, that you would help us be good stewards of this time and to maximize uh, the, the hours that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yesterday we had a wonderful start, and I want to say how much I enjoyed it, how much I profited from it. It's a two-way street. I hope you're learning from me. I'm learning from you, and uh, how much I enjoyed just even before this session being able to talk with many of you. I-, I wish I had the time to visit with each one of you personally and just find out about your ministry and find out what God's doing in your life and through your life. Um, And so, I also uh, have enjoyed the interaction through the Q&A and do want you to still feel free to raise your hand and we'll discuss things um, and talk about matters that are important to you uh, as we go through this material. Uh, We're under the marks of expository preaching, and yesterday we covered the meaning of expository preaching, what it is, and just very lightly what it's not mainly what it is, and then we moved into the marks of expository preaching, and we talked about the first five marks. We have six to go, but we talked about the first five marks, and just to bring to your remembrance what we talked about yesterday, we said it was text-driven, and under that we had two categories of of thought. We, We talked about what the Bible is, that it's inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative, clear, immutable, sufficient, uh, invincible. That's why we're so committed to preaching the Bible. And, And we could have just packed our bags and gone home after that. And I told you yesterday that if you truly believe this about the Bible, it's absolute spiritual insanity not to preach the Bible. And when I say to preach the Bible, I mean get down into the depths of the Bible and bring it to the surface and to teach your people. So, and then we also talked about under text-driven the different methods that you could do it sequentially, you could do it sectionally, you could do it thematically, you could do it biographically, you could do it apologetically, you could do it polemically, um, the various different approaches to expository preaching. And then we talked about that it's God-exalting, and that it's Christ-centered, and that it's Spirit-empowered, and that it's exegetically grounded, just to remind you of, of what we covered yesterday. And even in all of that, if time had permitted, we could have gone down into deeper caverns of, of, of veins of truth that run through um, each of these areas. So, now today, I want us to pick back up with number six, the marks of expository preaching. And number six, it's theologically precise. Theology is very important. Theology is taught throughout the entirety of Scripture, and it's what we call systematic theology. And systematic theology stands on the shoulders of biblical theology, and biblical theology stands on the shoulders of exegesis. Yesterday, we concluded with exegesis. It's your grammar your syntax your word studies the parsing of verbs it's it's the the details of what the bible means by what it says it's the historical background it's the geography it's 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 the cultural um ramifications of the first century that's down into the exegesis then standing on top of that is your theology. Out of individual passages, it all comes together. And you could think of a tapestry with all the different threads running in the different directions. It all comes together to form one perfect picture, teaching of truth. When we say biblical theology, we're talking about, there's, there would be what we call, these are kind of funny words, but let's begin with a simpler word, Pauline theology. What does Paul teach about? Um, Bibliology, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology. Then there's what we call Johannine theology, which is what does John teach in the gospel of John, uh, his three epistles in Revelation. Uh, There's Lukean theology, which is the gospel of Luke and then just Acts. Uh, There's Mathenian. There's Markian theology. There's Mosaic theology. There's, you know, Davidic theology. And and you can take all of the individual authors and, and what did they teach, and there's ten major areas of theology. Did I blow through that yesterday? I think so. You need to have these categories in your head if you're going to be a proficient expositor. And all of these ten major areas of theology poured through the individual authors of Scripture. Um, I've written a book called Foundations of Grace, for example. It's a 600-page book, virtually every verse in the Bible on the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I just start with Genesis, and I go through Revelation. Uh, What did Moses teach about the doctrines of grace? What did Joshua teach about the doctrines of grace? Uh, What did David teach about the doctrines of grace? What did uh, Solomon teach about the doctrines of grace? Isaiah, work your way, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, then the minor prophets. What did Christ teach in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? What did Christ teach in the Gospel of John? What did did Luke teach? Uh, What did Peter preach? You just work your way through the entire Bible. Then when you have all of these smaller areas of biblical theology, they're like building blocks or they're like individual bricks And when you put them all together, it forms the wall of systematic theology, which is the entire Bible, doctrinally, theologically. And these ten major areas of theology are the result of Moses, Joshua, Solomon, David, Isaiah, etc., all the way down to Johannine. An expositor must think in theological categories, and you must be well-grounded in theology. And I'm going to tell you why. Because if you're not well-grounded in systematic theology, they are like the guardrails on the side of the road. And if, you don't, if you're not a sound theologian, And as you come to a passage, if you don't have the whole rest of the Bible as guardrails, you could easily leave the playing field and teach something that's just absolutely nutty. That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. They have no systematic theology. Zero. Less than zero. Okay? You and I know too much to go into that kind of garbage. Because no matter who you are here today or where you are, you at least have some parameters. Whenever you come to an individual passage of Scripture, one passage of Scripture, I'm here today to preach on, let's say, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. You were dead in trespasses and sin. You're going according to the course of this world, the the God of this age. You're children of wrath. No matter what one passage you teach, there are multiple doctrines that are running through that passage from the entire rest of the Bible. You're just standing at an intersection, and there are many different highways of truth that are running through this from the entire rest of the Bible. And if all you do is only operate within these three verses and you're unaware of the entire rest of the Bible, you are very vulnerable to end up in the wilderness. So, you've got to know systematic theology. So that's why you go to seminary. That's why you go to, to, to Bible college. That, that's why in order to be able to be a, a, a great preacher, you've got to know the big picture, And by that, I don't necessarily mean just the unfolding story or the drama of redemption. I I mean the the theology of the whole thing. And and Martin Lloyd-Jones well argues that if you're going to preach on repentance, you have to know the doctrines of sin, the fall of Adam, the, the sovereign ministry of the Holy Spirit who grants repentance, who brings you to a point of conviction. You have to have a larger knowledge of the entire Bible to preach any individual passage of Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce was a great expositor in America in the last century. Some of you re- may recognize that name. I would say you ought to recognize that name if you're well read. And I had the privilege of spending time with him, and he preached for me multiple, several times. And I remember him telling me whenever he went on vacation, he took a systematic theology with him on vacation. And that's what he read for that vacation. When he would get up early in the morning, um, he he would sometimes go to the beach. He was a very proper man. I could just see him there on the beach with a three-piece suit on (laughs) 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 in his little systematic theology and the waves. Everyone else has got bathing suits on and he's dressed ready for church. Um, But that's why he was a great expositor are one reason why he was a great expositor because he was a great theologian. And if you're going to be if you're going to get to the next level of being an expositor, you're going to have to be well grounded in systematic theology. And you're going you're going to need to be reading systematic theologies so that you have categories of truth and you understand the main veins of gold that run through the entire mountain of the Bible so that you understand what are the main highways that interconnect South Africa because these truths are running throughout the entirety of the Bible. And they keep you accurate as you discuss and preach on any one portion of Scripture. It also is critically important in using cross-references that you know where the other verses in the Bible are that support what you're saying. If you're preaching on the holiness of God, for example, you ought to be able to boom, 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 and support that from other passages that say the same thing but reinforce what this passage is saying, sometimes the cross-references add a certain nuance that expands what this verse says. This verse says it in elementary form. Some of the other cross-references express it in a more developed form. And you would be very limited if you only stayed within the tight little box of, 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 these, of, the, of these couple of verses. You want to bring the entire rest of the Bible to bear uh, upon this. And it really serves to be the, the foundation upon which you stand as you come to the study of any particular passage of Scripture. So, that the entire Bible, and it's built upon this presupposition, that the entire Bible speaks with one voice. That there are no contradictions in the Bible whatsoever. That, That Paul is not competing with James. James is not contradicting Paul. That's fool's talk. They all speak with one voice. God doesn't stutter when he speaks. And God does not contradict himself when he speaks. And so the entire Bible. Gives one diagnosis of the human dilemma. The entire Bible gives one divine remedy. The entire Bible gives one way of salvation. There wasn't one way to be saved in the Old Testament and another way to be saved in the New Testament. That's fool's talk. There's one way of salvation. Old Testament, New Testament, no matter where anyone is saved, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're going to have to be a good systematic theologian, or you're going to be you're going to be teaching wrong doctrine. You, you may not be a prosperity gospel guy, but you're taking steps in the wrong direction. And that there is one plan for the family, there is one pattern for personal holiness and godliness you got to connect the whole in order to preach any individual passage of Scripture. But let me put it to you this way. You do not take one passage and look through it and see the entire rest of the Bible. It's the other way around. The entire rest of the Bible is brought to bear upon this one passage. In Acts 2.42, it's called the apostles' teaching. In Acts 20.27, it's called the whole council of God. In Romans 6, 17, it's called that form of teaching, form of teaching, referring to structure. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy 1, 10, called sound teaching. 1 Timothy 4, 1, is called the faith. You understand the word faith is used both subjectively and objectively in the Bible. Subjectively refers to saving faith. the objective use of the word faith refers to a body of truth. And so here's the deal. Sa- uh, subjective faith is as good only as its object of faith, which is objective faith. The Christian faith, that body of truth that is taught in the Bible. In Titus 1.9, it, it is sound doctrine. In 2 John 9, it is the teaching. In 1 Timothy 3.14, it is the truth. In 2 John 1, it is truth. In Jude 3, it is the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Lloyd-Jones, to quote him again and again, coming from this book, Preaching and preachers. says, what is preaching? It is theology on fire. And a theology which does not take fire, I maintain, is a defective theology. Or at least the man's understanding of it is defective. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire he says, preaching must always be theological. Always have a theological foundation. There is no type of preaching that is non-theological. That's a sentence worth writing down. There is no type of preaching that is non-theological. Whenever you hear someone say, well, we're not into doctrine, that means you're not into God you're not into Christ. You're not into truth. Your church is just a glorified social club. You're, you're more into donuts than you are into doctrine. You can write that down. <laughs> Lloyd Chaz Lloyd goes on to say, and here's the quote that I was referring to earlier. You cannot deal properly with repentance without dealing with the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of, of man, the, the wrath of God against sin. Then when you come to call people, then when you call people to come to Christ, I talked about that yesterday, evangelistically preaching and to give themselves to Him, how can you do so without knowing the doctrine of Christ, telling people who Christ is, and on what grounds you invite them to come to Christ? In other words, preaching is all highly theological. We live in a day in which the world wants these kind of sermons. They're how-to sermons how to have a happy vacation. Just junk like that. The high watermarks of church history have been those times in which theology has come back to the forefront. And you remember, Lloyd-Jones says, a theology which does not take fire as a defective theology or the man's understanding of it is. I understand that there's a lot of, there has been a lot of reformed truth that is self-destructed into the, what I call the ch- chosen frozen, or the frozen chosen. Um, that doesn't mean theology is bad, it just means those people's understanding of it is defective. So, it must be theologically grounded, and you must teach the full counsel of God. Let me put it this way. You need to be a theological expositor and bringing out the doctrine that is taught in a passage. I mean, there are times you just need to pull over and park the car and take five minutes in this sermon to unpack the majesty and the glory of this truth. Number seven, the marks of expository preaching. Not only theologically precise, it must be logically ordered. Every sermon has a distinct form, or should have a distinct form. There's a sermonic form just like a symphony has a certain form. Let me tell you what expository preaching is not, because a lot of people think of it in this manner. So I I just want to burn this bridge behind us before we talk about what it is, what it is not. It is not a random collection of exegetical gems. Uh, yesterday I called it an omelet. You just keep stuffing things in this omelet. And with the advent of the computer, <laughs> there's no end to this. I mean, you can just keep hitting buttons and going to links and just keep cutting and pasting and <laughs> you can just fill this thing up. You didn't read this. You don't know this. You're just cutting and pasting and things are spinning out of cyberspace and just all of a sudden now they're in your sermon notes. It, but expository preaching is not, it is not, it is not a random collection of exegetical gems that have no rhyme or reason, the order and the relationship between them. It is not a data dump of word studies. It is not a rambling commentary on a passage. Rather, it is a well-developed, logically ordered, carefully arranged progression of thought through a passage. There is a sequence of thought, and there is a central theme that runs through this passage. And you could think of it like this, like a clothesline that runs through a passage of Scripture. And a woman who hangs her clothes out to dry, she she begins to hang on that clothesline pillowcases and sheets and towels and, and shirts, a sermon has a clothesline that runs through it from the very first word that you speak to the very last word that you speak. There's just one clothesline. There's one central dominant thought that emerges from this passage of Scripture that becomes the dominant driving idea of this sermon. And many preachers just go off on rabbit trails. I mean, they just leave the planet. They're just in outer space somewhere. And people are just like trying to keep up with this. And they're just being jerked in every direction because some ADD adult pastor, I mean, he can't even stay on course with his talking. And he just has these little random thoughts that are flashing into his mind, and he's not even finishing a sentence, and the next thing you know, he's just off in this, this other direction. He just had a flash of an idea, and, and so he's like a drunken driver. He's just like weaving all over the highway, and he's running over things, and you don't even know where he's going to end up. That's, that's a lot of preaching. No, no. Expository preaching is linear. It's not circular. You're not like this airplane that's just circling the airport, but you won't ever land the plane. No, it's linear. Straight line. From 1 to 2 to 3 to 4, from A to B to C to D. It is logical. It is rational. And for me, I'm just moving through the passage because God is a genius and He's written the Bible very logically and very rationally. And as you're moving through this passage, there is an unfolding argument. And so, even my homiletical headings are just following the flow of this passage, and then the subheadings are just slicing and dicing what's in that next little part, and then moving on to the next part, but it's linear. The last thing I do is write an introduction and a conclusion. That's like the front porch and the back porch of a house. You gotta build the house first. Nobody starts by building the front porch. No, the first thing you do, no one builds the back porch first. You gotta build the house first. You gotta build the sermon first. Then you put an introduction. Then you put a conclusion. You build an airplane. You don't start with the wings, you you build the body then you add the wings. With this straight line, after I've written my sermon, now I'm I'm ready to think about the introduction. It better hook up with the same line that's running through this sermon. This introduction will only work for this sermon, not some other sermon I've preached or some illustration you've got. It needs to set up and be a part of this straight line that's running, it's like a laser beam. So, there is, uh, there's this logical order to a sermon. I mean, think about it. I mean, the introduction obviously goes first, right? I mean, you don't end with the introduction. The conclusion goes last, right? All right? you've got headings. Whether you say the headings or not, you better have headings in your head. It better be well thought out and well structured in your thinking. I announce the headings. It keeps me on track. It helps the listener follow me. It helps them take notes. Just like I'm going through right now. Text-driven, God-exalting, Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered, that helps you follow me. And they're lined up in a particular order. I began with the Bible, text-driven. Where else would you start? I, I then moved through the Trinity, God-exalting, Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered. First person of the Godhead, second person of the Godhead, third person of the Godhead. My, even the progression of my thought in what I'm talking to you about right now, it's logically ordered. There were subheadings under the first one, because we got to talk about what the Bible is, and then the different ways to do the text-driven, and this is all headed somewhere. And my last point is very purposely the last point; it builds to that. That's the way a ser- an expository sermon works. Have you ever heard Jay Bernie McGee on the radio? You know who that is? All right, you don't know. This won't work then. Um, The point is, you just can't be rambling through a passage. I, I, I don't want to listen to rambling. I want you to stay on message and stay on target so I can follow you. So it's logically ordered. And there are even things like transitions. From the first heading to the second heading, each heading is almost like an island, and you've got to build a bridge to go from one island to the next island. When you finish that island of thought, to get to the next island, you've got to have a bridge. It's called a transition to pull people along with you. There needs to be symmetry. Symmetry balance. In other words, I don't want one point that's 12 pages in my notes, and then the next point is half a page. And then the next point is five pages, and the last point is, you know, 98 pages or something. You know, the the whole thing is like me trying to walk with one leg three or two feet longer than the other leg. There's a certain proportion and balance to headings, their structure. Listen to Lloyd-Jones again. The central characteristic of a sermon is that it has a definite form. And And let me just throw this in. Let me tell you what it's not. It's not the answer to an essay question. back to Lloyd-Jones, and that it is this form that makes it a sermon. It is based upon exposition, but it is this exposition turned or molded into a message that has this characteristic form. I maintain that a sermon, Lloyd-Jones says, should have form in the sense that a musical symphony has, a, has form. A symphony always has form. It's not. Uh, it has parts. It has portions. The divisions are clear and are recognized and can be described, and yet a symphony is a whole. One should always think of a sermon comparable to a symphony. In other words, a sermon is not a mere meandering through a number of verses. It is not a mere collection or series of excellent and true statements and remarks. What makes a sermon a sermon is that it has this particular form. There should be divisions, um, propositions, headings, or heads, whatever you would like to call them. You must organize your headings and your divisions in such a way that point number one leads to point number two, and point number two leads to point number three. Point number three cannot be point number one. It has to be point number three. It it would be like telling a joke, but you start with a punchline. That makes no sense. It's not even funny. You've got to set it up before the punchline has any humor to it. And it's the same way with a sermon. There's this building progression to this crescendo, to use the symphony illustration. It builds to this climactic crescendo. I used to read Winston Churchill speeches just to see what made him such a powerful communicator stood up to Hitler. All he had was the power of words. JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, President of the United States, made him the third honorary citizen of the United States. And when he made him an honorary citizen of the United States, I think it was like 1963, he said Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into war. You would get on that BBC and we'll fight them in the streets, we will fight them in the air. We will never, never, never surrender. And he just breathed hope and steel into a deflated nation. When they look back upon this hour upon this generation they will say this was their finest hour. All of these extraordinary Churchillian quotes, or virtually all of them, are found in the last paragraph at the end of those speeches, meaning the whole speech is rising and building and careful thought given to the boom. All of the instruments, the cymbals, the symphony, it's building, and you end with emotion and impact. That's how a sermon ought to work. You don't just look up at the clock and go, Well, I'm out of time, let's pray. <laughs> what a goofy way to end you kidding me? I mean, it's over? (laughs) You got to have a rhyme and a reason for ending. Um, Number eight. Marks of an expository sermon. Not only logically ordered, passionately delivered. Great preaching should have the effect of igniting lives with the truth. Great preaching should wake up, fire up, lift up, hold up the listener. Great preaching should move the listener, should inspire and motivate the listener. I fear in our circles, we're so repulsed by the hyper emotionalism of the charismatic movement and prosperity gospel, etc that we have swung the pendulum so far in this other direction that we just want dry, bland, boring preaching and think it's super spiritual. I I mean, we are pushing the limits of the sovereignty of God. I mean, we are jumping off the temple of the pulpit and just praying angels will catch us. Um, that's just not preaching. And that's why so many just leave Reformed churches. I mean, they, they can't keep writing their initials on their Bible because there's so much dust on it. That it's just, it's just a dry, this is the driest place in South Africa. And that's why they swing then into these charismatic places. They're just looking for life somewhere. Just is something that has a pulse because this, this worship service and this sermon more resembles a funeral service than a wedding. I mean, they have the chairs up on the platform for rigor mortis to sit in. Um, You've got to have passion. God gave you emotions; they're not bad; they're good. And it has to be a part of expository preaching. This is why people react against expository preaching because they they sat under this dry as dust lecture on the Bible. And it becomes enhanced with, like, overhead projectors and stuff. And, you know, a guy's got a pointer and, or a little red light laser thing, and you're just going through charts. It's not preaching. Now, when I do church history, people sometimes ask me to do church history because there's, there's nothing in the Bible about, you know... Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon or whatever, I, I, I do put up some things on a Wednesday night so I'm in, and use it in Sunday school. I don't want to give the impression that's all, you know, of the devil. But people ask me about putting up videos during your sermon. I go, yeah, if you can't preach. <laughs> yeah, by all means. If you can't preach, do something, show cartoons. I mean, I don't know. Passion is contagious. If you're passionate about it, it has a way of infecting other people. I mean, why do people go to a restaurant they've never been to? Sometimes it's because their neighbor just, oh, man, it was so great. It was so wonderful. And you're able to convince someone to go to a restaurant or a movie. Why in the world would you go to that Well, my neighbor said, you know, they were so enthusiastic about it. Preaching ought to be persuasive like that and to be contagious with with people. They need to catch fire from you. Great preaching is captivating. It's entrancing, it's enthralling. It should spread like wildfire. what, What did the two disciples on the road to Emmaus say after Jesus opened up the Scriptures and showed himself to them in all the Scriptures? What did they say? Were not our hearts burning within us? I mean, we would just pour water on that in the average church. Stop that. You're having an emotion Were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us? Listen, when I asked my wife to marry me, this is what I didn't do. First of all, let me tell you, I had to be persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> I had to sell an inf- Product. <laughs> Me. <laughs> she bought high so low to <laughs> jump on this bandwagon. But I, 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 I did not do this. I, I, I didn't do a word study on agapeo. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I, I did not say, I do not think I can live without you any longer. I know your mother said, don't marry me. (laughs) And I've never known her to be wrong. (laughs) But would you marry me? I didn't do that. I mean, I I, I was full of emotion. I had passion. I was persuasive. I had to give... I had to be convincing. And she's not going to marry me if I'm bored asking her. It's not going to happen. But how many hyper-Calvinistic preachers are there who just come across like they're in the throes of death. We just want to say when they get out of the pulpit, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> Remove the grave clothes. And I'm not talking about hyper-emotionalism, but if we put a mirror under your nostrils, would there be any condensation? I mean, do something. Blink. Passion is conveyed in many ways. I've talked to Dr. MacArthur about this. Passion is just simply intensity. We, we all have different personalities. It doesn't mean you have to come off like a, like a skyrocket, but you ought to have a pulse and project some kind of intensity. It's conveyed in the tone of your voice. The rising, the falling, and by the way, passion is often conveyed with the lowering of your voice. Stephen James Lawson, may I see you in the living room? Oh, Dad, I wish you were yelling at me. (laughs) I wish you were out of control. I mean, you're too under control. May I see you in your bedroom? There was intensity, even in the lowering of the voice. The pace of your words sometimes speeded up, sometimes slowed down. And I'm not talking about manipulating people. I'm just talking about, do you know how to talk? The focus of your eyes conveys Intensity posture of your body. I mean, if you're just standing up here, how many guys do I see preaching, they, they got both hands in their pocket and they're playing with their keys while they're talking. I, I, all I know is this can't be important. The gesture of the hands, the extension of the arms, the repetition of words. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I mean, Jesus is talking this way. It's okay. The placement of words in the sentence, the choice of words, the pause between words, the shedding of tears, the closing of eyes, the smile of the mouth. I mean, all of this. And it's arising out of depth of convictions. One day in seminary, we're in the preaching lab, which is this awful divine judgment where you have to go into class and preach to the other guys in class. And the professors back in this glass closet and watching you and he's listening to you and he's got a little microphone and he's able to talk into this microphone and critique you while you're preaching. Yeah, I'm just glad he's in a glass deal. No one else can hear what he's saying. And so one day we had this guy get up and I mean, he's just a genius. I mean, you you couldn't Greek Hebrew. I mean, he just knows everything about everything. And so he gets up and he's got this death grip on the pulpit and he's just like frozen and he's just struggling and have, you know, and it's just painful to, to, to sit there. And it's like I couldn't pay enough tuition to have to go through this. And, and, and so the professor finally, stop, 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 comes out of the glass deal. And he, and he goes up to him in front of the whole class and he goes, you don't believe this. He goes, well, yeah, no, I do who are you trying to kid? You you don't believe this. And so he works the guy up to almost being mad. No, yes, I do believe this. The guy goes, tremendous. Now get up there and preach like this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, convince us you do believe this. It's just a part of passion. And I'm not talking about yelling, though I've done that at times. But however that works in your psyche, in your personality, in your temperament, in your cultural background, in your realm in which you live, expository preaching is passionately delivered. You're going to have to bleed the truth. If you take the Oxford English Dictionary, and I actually have like the, whatever it is, 18-volume set of the Oxford English Dictionary. I got it because James Montgomery Boyce had it. So I was like, okay, this will make me a good expositor. (laughs) He had it behind his desk. I'm going to have it behind my desk. Um, And you look up the word passion. Passion. You get primary meaning, secondary meaning, third level meaning, etc., etc. I'll just throw this in. I've got a whole lecture on just how to have passion. The first primary meaning in the Oxford English Dictionary is the passion of Christ. The sufferings of Christ. The Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass away from me. Not my will, but yours. The bleeding through the pores. This cardiovascular system under extraordinary pressure. The engine is about to burst. It goes to the cross. The sufferings of Christ. What he felt. The secondary meaning of passion is the passion of the martyrs. You go get Fox's Book of Martyrs. You go get Light from Old Times by J.C. Ryle. You go read. You go read about this guy pushing past his 12 children to get to the stake. Quoting Psalm 51 as they strap him in front of his church to send a message to the congregation. This is what we think of your pastor. You think he was feeling anything? You think he was just some little stoic robot going to the to the stake? No, he felt deep convictions. That's what the word passion means. And I want to say. You're not going to have the full depth of passion until you suffer for the gospel. Until you face rejection and opposition. Because as long as you're preaching to the choir, you've got an easy religion. And you don't really know what you believe. Until you've had to pay a price for it. It's been said every pastor, when you step into the pulpit, he ought to have his letter of resignation signed and in his hip pocket. I'm, I'm willing to put it all out on the table. Fire me or follow me, one of the two. That's, what, that's where passion comes from. Depth of convictions, but you really believe and you're willing to suffer and pay any price. When you're at that point, you're going to come across with depths of feeling. Ninth, it's boldly declared. We've already talked about the word, the Greek word for boldness. It means all speech. And when you look up meanings, it means... Freedom of speech without reserve. You put it out there. It means to speak without ambiguity. Listen, as a speaker, I, I know what it is. As a preacher, if I want to cover up a truth, I know how to change my vocabulary. So only about a third of you get the drift of what I really said. And the other two-thirds of you can just sit there innocently and not really catch what I just said. I know how to disguise what I'm saying. And I also know how to make it unmistakably clear. An expositor is unmistakably clear. If we're having a problem, it's not a misunderstanding. If we're having a problem, it's that you do understand what I'm saying. It means to speak daring words. It means to speak out strongly, knowing that others will disagree and costly reprisals will come. I know what it is to be called by the chairman of the deacons to his office in a huge office building and to be told, don't preach the next verse. And you're one of the most powerful men in town. And to say, sir, you have just guaranteed I will preach the next verse. (laughs) I was going to anyway. But I cannot be bought. I I know what it is to be told they're going to take over the pulpit while you're preaching. And they're going to vote you out during during the worship service. I know what it is to have to get... The babysitters and to get keep the kids home. Stand up, start preaching. I I know what it is to go in and there's three or four times the number of people that would normally be here because they've got the boats and they've brought them in from four corners and they're going to take over. But to go ahead and put it out there. An expositor must boldly declare the truth. You can't speak and, as though you have marbles in your mouth. The word means to speak the whole truth. It means to speak and to give a full disclosure of what must be said. Because God has spoken. It means to speak and hold nothing back. One definition says it means to speak without figures of speech. There's nothing veiled. It means to speak with the absence of fear. Speak openly, confidently, directly, courageously. I'm going to just give you some verses, I'm not going to read them all. 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, Acts 13.44 through the next several verses, Acts 4.29 and 30, 2 Corinthians 3.12, Ephesians 6.19, it's a hallmark. I've written a book called The Heroic Boldness of Martin Luther. Uh, Every preacher in the world ought to read that book. Not because I wrote it, because it's got Luther in it. All I did was collect the best of the best of Luther and just put them in a little small book. Every preacher needs an IV hookup of Martin Luther. Whatever was flowing through his veins needs to flow into my veins. Spurgeon said, my motto is, I yield to none. I preach what I like, when I like, as I like. Fire me or follow me? Spurgeon said, I have not softened down the Bible to suit the carnal tastes of men. I have said damn where God has said damn. I have not sweetened it into condemn." He said, I'm often charged with preaching doctrines that may do a great deal of hurt. I have my witnesses present here today to prove that the things that I have preached have, in fact, done a great deal of hurt. But they have not done hurt to morality or to God's church. The hurt has been to the devil. I mean, there's a reason why we're talking about some of these men still. Still. 500 years later, 200 years later. It wasn't because they, they were little preachers scared of their shadow. And this does not mean that we have the right to run roughshod over people and jam things down their throat. But it does mean we speak up and speak the truth in love. It's not love to hold the truth back. Adrian Rogers has said, it is better to be divided by truth than united by error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than to speak falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is not love if we fail to declare the whole counsel of God. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It is better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with the multitude. Number 10, pastorally edifying. And this is the great counterbalance. This is the great counterbalance to boldly declared. We've got to be encouraging. You pick your spots when the lightning bolt hits, I'm boldly declared. The whole sermon is not a thunderbolt. You pick your spots. But on the whole, we are pastorally edifying and encouraging and lifting up and building up and strengthening and breathing hope into people whose flame is all but extinguished. The mother who's raising her kids by herself without a husband. The businessman who has lost his job. The single woman who's not married and her friends are. The teenager who has zero self- Respect. You've got to be encouraging. And if there's a negative bone in your body, you need to break it and get it out of your body. You need to be a feeding shepherd. Shepherds lead the flock, ranchers drive a herd. We're not ranchers cracking a whip and driving a herd from behind. We are shepherds who are out in front with our voice pulling people to follow us to green pastures and still waters. And we want them to eat out of our hand. I've already said, but 1 Thessalonians 2, I said yesterday, we need to be like a nursing mother. No more tender, intimate picture in all of life than the life-giving milk of a nursing mother. There needs to be gentleness, compassion. But he goes on to talk about The father, we need to be like a father who is strict and disciplining and imploring. And you need both. It's the heads and tails of the same coin. And wise is the expositor who knows how to go back and forth from being the loving mother and the imploring father. And we've got to be a humble servant. We we talk in terms of we. Like, I'm in the game with you. Now, I don't believe in getting up and just telling you every fault I have in my life and throwing up on myself as a way to, like, manipulate you to like me. But I do need to come across... In terms of, I haven't arrived. And I'm just like you. I'm trying to work through this myself. And we all need grace. And we all fall short. And we all need encouragement. And you include yourself. You move from the we eventually to the you. And great preaching gets to the you. But great preaching begins with the we. And finally, we've already talked about this, but evangelistically aimed. Yeah. Work. Yeah. Please. Please. Maybe just elaborate on how we can admonish the way we encourage the work, but do that to one congregation with different people sitting in. Yeah, yeah, and this is drawn from that passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. And I've had to think about this. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, in the context of pastoral ministry, because in verse 12 he says, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction... And so it's talking about the relationship between the pastor and his flock, the elder and his flock. So that's to the flock. You need to appreciate those who labor among you. Now he speaks to the spiritual leadership in verse 14, and we urge you, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And you can't mix and match that. You can't admonish the weak and help the unruly. You don't want to encourage the unruly. You have to adapt the application for the different people. Now, how you do that, it requires... See, it's the pitch on this lectern. It's not geared for a speaker. Um, or at least one with the Bible. Um, the way you do that Sometimes when I'm in my study, I think about different people in my church, kind of representative people. I think about, I have a little section, or I had a little section, my widow section. Ladies who have lost their husbands, and they kind of sit over there. I've got another widow section over here. These are wives whose husbands are alive, but their husbands won't come to church with them. They come only on Christmas and Easter. I call them CEOs—Christmas and Easter only. And and I've got this little front line guys on the front pew. These are all guys who who are, are, are who are heading into the ministry, heading off to seminary, and they're just—they want red meat on the front row. And then I've got the businessmen and their families and they're all with their kids and they're all seated together. I'm thinking about all these different groups of people. And I'm also thinking about people that... And and I sit on the platform, not on the front row. I sit on the platform just so I can see who's here so I can know how to adapt my application as I get up to preach. I, I, I need to know to whom am I preaching and I'm looking to see, and yeah, sure enough, there's that husband. He finally came this Sunday. And here are some people I have good reason to believe are unconverted. And here are a couple we people. We're, we're about ready to exercise church discipline on them. So I've got all these different categories of people in the back of my mind, and there are times in the sermon where I will try to make an application that affects their circle. And different portions of Scripture naturally lend itself to address the unruly. Different portions naturally lend itself to the faint-hearted. And I want to hit the pause button when I come to those sections and try to put myself in their skin... What does it feel like to have lost a husband? What does it feel like to have lost a job? In the, in the golden rule, do unto others you have others do unto you. What would I want someone to say to me that would lift me up and encourage me? So I'm thinking about that. Sometimes it's scribbled into my notes. I mean, I'll just have businessmen, teenagers, Whatever. Sometimes I'm just doing it spontaneously as I'm preaching. Almost like you just asked me a question and I stopped and I'm giving this answer spontaneously. It's almost in the middle of the sermon without someone speaking to me. I'm aware I need to stop and address this. So Warwick, that's. That's one thing that I'm doing. Um, And that's why it's very important to be aware of what's going on in lives of people so you know how to adapt it. Um, One way is, obviously, you talk to people. That's why the 15 minutes after I preach when I'm out in the... Lobby is critically important for me. That's why I try to talk to people before I preach. That's why a lot of people feel like they can't talk to me because I'm talking to three people, so they talk to my wife. And I get a lot of information, not gossip. It's like, would you please ask the pastor to pray for me? I have a job interview. This week, I, I get a lot of information like that. Or my wife will say, are you aware that this widow fell and broke her hip and this is her you know, first Sunday back and I'm, I'm, I'm getting information that way. We also have a prayer list that you can call in the office and we'll put your prayer request or we're aware of it and we'll put it on there for you. It's a very sensitive thing. It's not a gossip thing. You would want to be on the prayer list. And I, I, I'm reading that because that's just like, here's my application. Just read this prayer list. And to think about if there's one person there that has to represent ten people that I don't know about. So I'm, I'm processing that. And, and you want your preaching to be as personal As it can be. And sometimes you need to think about your preaching as though you're speaking to one person. Not an anonymous blob of people that have no names and no faces. When I stand to speak, many times there's probably like five or six people that I just kind of keep going back and forth to and they're the most receptive people. If I look at unreceptive people while I'm preaching, that just pours water on my fire. I mean, that just discourages me. So I'm looking to people who are nodding, people who are crying, people who are elbowing the person next to them, people who are writing this down, people who are looking up, people are saying amen, you know, whatever. I'm playing off of your energy. You know, I'm preaching to you, but you're kind of preaching to me with your response. So I'm playing off of that. And I'm, as I'm going around, I'm aware of different needs and different things going on in people's life. Now, here, understand this on application. For every time you say, teenagers, listen to your pastor, you have just blocked out 90% of the church you don't want to be blocking out 90% of the church very often. You want to keep it as generic as possible so your arms are around everyone in the building. So that's why you're looking for general principles so that you can say no matter who you are or where you are here today, now I'm talking to everybody in the building. But there are times, like in the book of Ephesians, husbands, husbands, Wives, parents, children, masters, slaves. I mean, that's, those are very specific categories of people. And there, there are legitimate times to do that. But the more you do that, you're excluding everybody else in the building. They're going to tune out while you're talking to these other people. So you want to keep general principles that are timeless, that rise above the centuries, and are re- true of every person to whom you're speaking? That's a, that's a good question. Is there a follow-up you want to ask? Yeah, that's, that's the best I've got. <laughs> yeah, in the back. Dr. just to touch on what you said now, in Uh-huh. Yes. I know Jay Adam you know helping a lot with with the U aspect. But just from your opinion, can you maybe just define and elaborate of when to use the we you? Yeah, just in general to, to to restate I've probably told you more than I know. <laughs> um but I, I start off with the we and work my way to the you. And the you is usually a very emphatic point. To drive home something. And sometimes the you is evangelistic. I mean, I can't say we need to be saved. I'm saved. (laughs) I mean, you wouldn't want me if I'm lost. (laughs) You wouldn't want me if I'm saved. (laughs) But... The we, again, is we all have need of this. We, we, we all are faced with temptation. We all need grace to resist the world. We all need to have on the full armor of God. I mean, that's just a very simple... I, I don't know what else I can say to that because I'm not thinking about it. It's just happening while I'm speaking. But I will work my way at certain points... And in my notes, I, I draw a little box around them. And I just, in my mind, I just refer to them as preacher points. I mean, that's, it's, it's a time to roar like a lion. And those tend to be more you. Why do you procrastinate? Why do you keep putting this off? Why, why do you say to yourself, tomorrow, when, when are you ever going to come to the point of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. When are you ever going to join the church? Why, why do you keep just bouncing around from church to church, depending upon who's got the hottest band or who had the coolest concert or who's got the best youth group? When are you ever going to commit yourself? Well, I want to tell you, when you die, you go call them. I mean, they're, they're, they're the you... It's like a penetrating sword. It needs to be used carefully. Sometimes it can be used pastorally, though. Some of you have suffered the loss of a loved one recently. And you know what it is to be alone. But I must remind you that you're never alone. Christ says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And you can use the you to be very pastoral also. I'm sure it works out different with different men. Some, some men are more high justice, low mercy. Other men are more high mercy, low justice. And you just come across that one. And you're trying to correct it. and You're trying to bring about balance. But it's kind of like you're either right-handed or left-handed. And you favor one hand over another. And, and so you're you even in your preaching you may favor more we or you and you just need to be aware of it. But that's the best I've got on that. I, I, I don't I it's the best I've got. I also have if you answered the question but I was just gonna ask how do you speak to the people that you want to talk about, i say the teenagers or the widows who have lost uh enough but I think you've done that by saying that you may have gone through such a yeah yeah exactly. Yeah no you've answered the question for me. Um. Thank you. Um, <laughs> again, you just keep it as generic as possible. But like, if they're sitting there and breathing, they they get it. Yeah. That's why I don't favor a rotating pulpit. Um, I I think every team needs a leader. And that leader needs to be the chief speaker. And um, I I think that when you have a rotating pulpit, this is just me personally. You you run into that. um, You run into other problems. You're supposed to finish through verse 3, but you only got through verse 1. And now this next guy is supposed to pick up. He's been studying verse 4 through 8, but you didn't get to verse 4. And so, I mean, so now what do you do? Uh, Sometimes people call the office. They want to know who's preaching this Sunday because I like this guy more than that guy. And I'm going to come if this guy's preaching and let me know if you're preaching. And I'll go visit another church. And, I mean, you're tempting people with that kind of thing. Um, there's an economy of time as if I'm preaching the book of Ephesians I've, as I said yesterday everything I studied for chapter 1 it all pulls forward and 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 it's an economy of my time I'm not having to reduplicate my exegetical efforts in my study and but if if this is tag team wrestling and the next guy's up and he's having to start from scratch a little bit and and then sometimes yeah you you do end up at different interpretive Positions it, it can become confusing. Um, I personally don't favor it. I mean, the best I could do would be have one guy on Sunday morning, another guy on Sunday night. I mean, it's kind of like me doing a wedding. Sometimes people ask me, would I, would I do a joint wedding with another pastor? And I go, no, not really. I mean, either ask me to do it or ask him to do it. I'm happy for him to do it. But don't tie up both of us. Um, that's just, but that's just me. Uh, other guys love the camaraderie of, of the team deal. I'm a little bit more of an introvert. I'm a little bit more of an individualist, so that comes through. But it, even in church history, the, the strongest pulpits have been the strongest voices, and the strongest voice needs to be the guy bringing the word. That's just my thought on that. Don't really have chapter and verse. Though, it's interesting, Peter and John, John wasn't bad. You don't even hear peep from John in the book of Acts. All you hear is Peter. Just like, where's John? Don't know. He's not talking. It's all Peter. You've got a strong point, man. Um, Why didn't Timothy get to preach? Why didn't Barnabas? Why doesn't Silas? Why is it always Paul? Well, you go with your lead man. Man. This this isn't a little therapy group among the guys. I mean, it's for the good of the church. So that's just my thought on that, though. Yes, sir? The other guy's Roman Catholic and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you just need to go to another passage. Uh, I think when you're an associate and you have the rare opportunity to step in and the other Guys doing 90% of it, and you and three other guys do the other 10% periodically. I think you really need to be in submission um, under the, the lead man. And you're just going to need to go to another passage that we're, that we're all in agreement. I, 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 I think it's not healthy for the church, for a young guy, to, to stir the waters and, and to, and to kind of create division, and fractions, and, and it may be, I mean, I had to do this my, when I graduated from seminary. I was in that very position, and I, and I lasted one year, and I remember the pastor telling me, I spent my whole ministry getting these people saved, and now you're getting them lost. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. Um, and I was reformed, and he wasn't. And, and I, I, I had to honestly, and the deacons now like me more than him and stuff like that. And I realized this is divisive. And I need to take the high road. I just need to leave. This God called you here before I ever arrived. You, you've made the investments. You've cleared the stumps. You have plowed the field. I just show up you know, and start casting a few seeds. You're the one that's done the heavy lifting here. Even if I disagree with you, it would be the most, it would be the high road for me to just take a step back so that the deacons are not all looking to me rather than you, so that we do not appear to be in kind of this competing situation. It's a big world out there. There's a lot of churches in the world. There's a lot of people who need Christ. I I, I don't want to be so small-minded that I think that this is the only place I can serve the Lord. And so I just voluntarily resigned and went to another church where there would be unity and we'd all be pulling in the same direction. So... I I think that's the high road as an associate. And, yeah, you need to be bold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We we also need to be peacemakers and unifiers. And if my presence here is dividing the church, maybe maybe I just need to go start my own church, but not two blocks away. (laughs) (laughs) I just need to go to another town, another place, and... Reinvent myself. Go ahead. Uh huh. Sending church. Yes. Well, it would depend on what all is in, what what all comes with that. If this means now I have to be under the elders of the sending church, and they don't know up from down. No, I, 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 I don't. My, my conscience won't allow that. I, I'm starting a new work over here. We're going to do it different. It's going to be a reformed church. It's going to have elder leadership. It's going to have expository preaching. It's going to have um, a simplified worship. Um, it's going to have lifestyle evangelism. It's going to have, you know, whatever. And if this sending church, and it, it depends on, like, what do you mean sending church? I mean, am I still accountable to you and responsible back to you? You don't understand who I am and what we're about, so that's why I'm leaving, (laughs) because because we're pulling in different directions. It would just depend, again, I I keep saying, there's not a one-size-fits-all on this. It would depend on, what, what does that mean? you to be the sending church and what what does that mean on an ongoing basis And, and what were the issues that we couldn't agree on and and now how much freedom do we have to worship God in the manner that we believe God would have us to worship